0: The way I would describe it is that, of course, everybody had to hunker down and hope they could survive during COVID. Because you had an in-person based business that doesn't do delivery, right? (laughs) So you don't have a lot of options.
1: From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. Way, way back in a time before TikTok and scooter rentals on every corner, I met with a web developer about an app I wanted to build. We met at his office in downtown St. Paul. It wasn't a traditional office. It felt more like I'd stepped into some sort of creative agency. Raw open space, wood beams, big windows, bicycles propped up against the walls. This was Coco in 2010. Home base for freelancers, small business owners, and computer programmers who wanted to get out of the house and network with others in the startup community. While there'd been shared office spaces before it, Coco was really the Twin Cities first co-working space as we've come to know it. And it was bubbling up in the Twin Cities at the very same time WeWork opened its first space in New York. Don Ball was the co-founder of Coco. Today, he sits on the board of the company, which is now known as Fueled Collective. It's a fascinating time to think about how we work, where we work, and what the post-pandemic office might look like. But for context, we start with the factors that gave Don the idea to get into the co-working business in the first place.
0: I was a freelancer for a bunch of years and worked out of the house. And I remember going stir crazy and at one time I had an office downtown and I I did imagine what if I invited other creatives into the same space. This was like mid nineties. So I was so it would just seemed like a goofy idea at the time and I dismissed it. But I thought, oh, what if I could invite other creatives to hang out? Maybe we'd do projects together. I don't know. At the very least we would kind of help each other networking and stuff like that. So I imagined the idea, which I'm I'm guessing a lot of people who aren't in, in in creative endeavors, where there's a lot, there needs to be a lot of connectivity to other types of experts. Yeah, I'm guessing that's occurred to a lot of people in the past. Um, but what brought it, what made it possible in, you know, the late uh, the first, the late part, latter part of the first decade of the 2000s. So, you know, I think the first officially called co-working space was in 2005 in San Francisco, and it was an open-source developer who wanted to be around other open source people. That kind of makes sense because there's a lot of sharing of information with open source mm-hmm. coding. And so they'd like to be surrounded by each other. Um, you, had, you had like unconferences and bar camps and things like that. So informal um, educational events really started happening. And um, of which, by the way, uh, Minibar here in town is, as far as I know, still the largest bar camp in the world, wow! They just get that many people together, and it's all self-directed by it by the participants, you know, as opposed to being um, kind of created from the top down. Mm-hmm. So that kind of thing was really starting to happen. Mobile technology started to happen, uh, you know, smartphones showed up, and in in, you know, in the, you know, around the time we started, 2010. And then laptops really became, you know, everybody's main go-to, you sure. know, computing device.
1: Made our offices portable, basically. Yeah, that's
0: what that's what it amounted to. Is you were not tied to a landline, you weren't tied to a a, a desktop, and so th- I think in this time we had had a we had had a really healthy freelance community in general. And so, were
1: you a freelancer because you didn't want to work for other people because you liked the flexibility? What what drove you I've, to that?
0: I've always made a bad employee. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. I just, I mean, I, I don't have a bad attitude, but I just. I just don't fit well into well-defined structures and hierarchies. I just kind of chafe at it. So, okay. So, being a freelancer made a lot of sense for me, and so I pursued that. So, when when me and my co-founder Kyle Coolbroth, we when we kind of put two and two together and said like, "Oh, this is a great idea," the real magic was that we had a building owner that that Kyle knew from his previous life in, in Lower Town, Saint Paul, who was sitting with a largely empty building. They uh, he. Him and his brother had bought the building. They had had it all rehabbed, and then they sold off the business that they had that inhabited the building. The reason for buying it, mm-hmm. it was sold off in bits and pieces. And so then they were basically accidental landlords, sitting with a largely empty building. And Lower Town was not great at the time. So we ran this idea past this this partner of ours, Jeff Hegard, and and he said, "I don't get it, but I like it." So then he <laughs> and it was great because it was really that was the vote of confidence or the of blind faith, really. He just liked what it represented. It sounded good to his. Yeah. He was a kind of a recovering hippie.
1: This this was before the the Saint Paul Saints had moved to Lower Town. Correct. This was. I know. I lived there for a time, and it was tough. I loved the area, but I felt like I had to leave Lower Town
0: to do anything. It's true. It's true. And we were two doors down from that. The you remember the heavy metal bar that was yes over there across from the depot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were still active and and that whole building next to us was basically all squatters okay you know so going in the alley was always an adventure but so lower town was just like it was really iffy and nobody knew where it was going but we we could get a building there and basically the jeff and his brother roger said we'll you know we'll cover the hvac you um you go try this for a while and let's see if it works Okay. And then and through that, we were able to make them, you know, equity partners. So
1: you didn't need a, a it wasn't a huge investment up front. No,
0: $10,000 okay. precisely in Ikea furniture and a, and a, and a, a, a residential grade um, Wi-Fi router.
1: Okay, that's key. Got to have good Wi-Fi. Which
0: proved to be wholly inadequate, like within a matter of weeks. But. Funny.
1: Did you know right away that you wanted, I mean, did you want everybody sitting together? Was that your vision, that it's just a communal table and people are sharing ideas throughout the day?
0: Yeah, we we did. We did. I mean, that was really the thing that drew us was like this interconnectivity and people helping each other, you know, like just a big mutual aid society. Because, I mean, from the minute we started, we didn't get a lot of people, but the ones who showed up were the ones who also were craving that. And so... From day one, we were like seeing the thing happen. And it was really exciting because that just that level of, oh, I don't know, um, that type of community didn't exist yet.
1: Nobody was talking. I mean, co- was co-working even a term that you used right away? We did. You, okay. We did. But then that
0: required explanation of like what it what, People didn't know what it was. What does that mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
1: this was long before we work. Yeah. So did people start coming right away? How did you?
0: Some, a few did. Otherwise, we had to prime the pump. I mean, we had to convince people, like, why would I pay for this extra line item that I've never had in my life? Uh All of a sudden, pay you money to, you know, so so you had to convince them that there was benefits that they could not yet see because they couldn't have experienced that anywhere else, but that there was something special here and that could really kind of, you know, accelerate, if only for mental health, you know, Mm -hmm. but also maybe for your career and for making connections and finding out about things that you you know, would mm-hmm. would find to be helpful. Okay, so
1: were you able to cover the rent right away, or I mean, how long did it take for it to to kind of gain momentum? About
0: six months. That's not and bad. Yeah, that's not bad. And um, but but the our scale was you know kind of small. We were just like trying to make it, and we had been contacted that year, not long after opening, by the Minneapolis Green Exchange. Mm-hmm. But we just like we not only f- it dismissed it we forgot about it. So then the next, it was the next year that R.T. Ryback reached out and said, He was
1: mayor at the time. Yeah,
0: Minneapolis. And he said, what do we need to do to get you into Minneapolis? And so we went and did a visit with him. And, uh, And he said, you know, right kitty corner from, you know, city hall, there's a space. And he ended up arranging for us to have a tour of the grain exchange. And which is an amazing building. Oh, I know. No, you can't beat it. But we went in there, and at first I was like, no, it's too huge. This will never uh-huh, work. Uh-huh. Um, and, and then we went and looked at another space in Minneapolis, which was much smaller and, and boxed in. And then that's what made us realize, wait a second, the epic nature of that green exchange space is its own marketing campaign. It's mm-hmm. its own, like, you know, it, it's the talkability mm-hmm. factor. So, so we ended up taking the lease on that. In what year? Uh, 2011.
1: And I mean so that's pretty quick just a year after you started the the co-working space in St. Paul now you're in Minneapolis why do you think RT Ryback wanted you
0: in in Minneapolis I I think he's just got a re, I think he's got a good ear for where things are going mm-hmm. or he did at the time
1: and and co-working while it wasn't the huge trend that it that it became it it still had a bit of a cool factor. You were all techies. You were all working on forward thinking projects.
0: Yeah, I think I think if if I think back to why why it mattered, then, um, you know, we were coming off the 2008 recession, mm-hmm. you know, with the housing bubble, and and I think while high tech and new tech and startups were definitely on the rate people's radar, like it was happening in other cities and not here, and so I think. There was a, a kind of a hunger for people to see that it's happening in our own city, yeah. and what the green exchange represented was the first time you could walk into one space and see that it is indeed happening here. Yeah, that there, this that this kind of tech, these startups, these people doing really you know interesting, advanced, innovative ideas are right here. Yeah, you know, not elsewhere. And I think that's kind of what it. That's what made it, it really special. Now you wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't have the same effect now because. We've answered that question we there's no question that we have you know we have a lot of tech innovation happening here
1: mhm- isn't it? It must be interesting for you i mean when you think about the way we talk about and prioritize entrepreneurship today and just all the things going on from corporate incubators to startup competitions to i mean there's just so much happening, is it kind of mind blowing I mean do you feel like it was all going on, but nobody was talking about it then or? What has happened in the past decade? How did we get here?
0: I think it wasn't all happening. Mini bar and and mini demo were like the only kind of big tech events in town. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe there's others I'm missing, and I apologize. But but those are the ones on my radar that like, and and you could find that tribe if you went there. Mm -hmm. But um, I think what's happened is you know the. You've had the addition of who knows how many people who weren't you know they were in high school and or <laughs> maybe middle school in twenty ten and now they've entered you know they've entered the work world but this but they've decided they want to pursue something like a startup yeah um especially people who want to use it to actually make you know kind of positive change, not just make a buck right um but actually like have some kind of impact. I think those people keep on coming and keep on coming and so what you have is 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 the ecosystem is responding to that so now there's all sorts of tech events and there's incubators and accelerators and mm-hmm. and 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 now there's a lot more efforts you know at kind of inclusion and trying to and trying to make you know kind of this ecosystem accessible and available to people who otherwise would have not Sure. found themselves in it before.
1: Are there people, uh, when you think back to the early days of Coco and your members, are there people who've gone on to do like really big things? Are there businesses that were incubated in your spaces?
0: Yeah. Um, one of our early members, Aaron Cardell, started uh, mobile, mobile realty apps. And I, th- I think he changed it to home, named the HomeSpotter, which was their yep. kind of principal app. Um, he started in the St. Paul space. Cool. And, um, and, and then went on and went- he went to the downtown space uh, when we started that and then he ended up getting an office in the grain exchange building mm. um but he just he was just acquired or his company was just acquired yeah um so that's kind of a cool exit we in minneapolis we had the uh the the um weber brothers uh came and they had their their company at the time was called native x um and they ended up selling that for um a good chunk i believe hmm. so there was a number of people who came through i mean like oh uh, I'm trying to think of some of these because they just there are so many. And what usually, what happened, I don't feel like we can lay claim to having done something revolutionary for them. But I am. But people stopped and and kind of hung out with us for a while mm-hmm. at, at where it made sense in their journey, and then they would go on. You mm-hmm. know, and that's just really what it. That's what it's about. It's a, you know, it's a it's an easy kind of community to in in office space if you want to just look at that aspect. It's easy to plug in. And it's also easy to leave, right because the whole point is that you're not locking into a, a long-term lease, so but
1: does that make it a good business where you as you were <laughs> gaining momentum and expanding, were you making money?
0: We were making enough to pay ourselves okay. um but like you know never to like you know give the shareholders a payday, that kind of thing um we i I always marvel at this because in the ten years that I was part of it. We were always trying to figure out what the business model was hmm. because it if it was just going to be, we resisted at first the idea of just having private suites for everybody because it was like, well, then that's just like, they were just a landlord mm-hmm. and that's not terribly interesting. Um, but yet it really ter- thing you know, with the, with the arrival of WeWork and people like that, they were in the suites business and they, that's how they figured out their, well, in the case of WeWork. Their, I was
1: going to say, did they figure was, it out? That was their, I mean, yeah, different that was, approach.
0: Well, WeWork, for WeWork was a fantasy, yeah. you know, fueled by funny money. Um, yeah. That was obvious to all of us in the business from day one. But Industrious has done a really good job. And I think they have, you know, they, they, well, they, just, they just got not acquired, but, but a big investment, which is probably a payday for the owners, um, from uh, one of the big real estate brokerages. So they figured out how to make it cash flow. Um,
1: so when did the big national competitors begin to arrive? And was it Industrious and in WeWorks, or was it other locals that were trying to do co-working? Which, well, which a, happened first? A number
0: of uh, no, we had some other locals who 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 came to the scene first. Um, most of them probably never attempted the scale that we were trying to attempt, mm-hmm. and and so. There was always room for everybody. It was really easy to say, like, "Oh no, you know, f- f- you know, check them out, check us out. If you like our flavor, come hang out with us." When WeWork showed up, though, and when Industrial showed Industrial showed up first, I want to say it was like uh, two thousand oh maybe twenty sixteen, twenty seventeen. Okay, and in. They didn't really have much of an effect because they they had kind of a high-end product. Like, you're going to pay more for that. So a lot of people were put off by that. And they tended to get a lot of, like, kind of high-end professional types as mm-hmm. opposed to entrepreneurs. But when we were, came in because they were flooding the market, they were basically dumping their product um, and, and giving people, like, oh, here's a year free with no commitment. Yeah, That became – I'm sure it's, like, how cabbies feel about, you know, about when uh, Uber showed up and sure. was – Given the stuff away practically, you can't compete with that. You really can't. Um, so they basically created this like downward price pressure. Um, it's an age old story, right? It's happened elsewhere. Yeah. But they, they didn't just show up and do one location. They went downtown, then they went to uptown, then they went to North Loop. And we're like, you know, we're, we're looking at, at that and going like, this market doesn't support that much co working. Mm-hmm. Um, so they kind of created a bit of a vacuum. So did you? That made you, it hard to work against.
1: Was it a, a mass exodus from Coco?
0: Wasn't mass, but it was definitely we. We ended up having to really work hard to keep our sales and renewals up. Uh-huh. Like I'm, like it's maybe three times as hard as we ever did. Yeah. Um, and had to get super systematic and professional about it. Hmm. Um, and was that was that a good thing at all? I mean, did they make you raise
1: your game, or or well,
0: just sure? I mean, at one level, yeah, the competition is always good. But it doesn't address that when, when, you know, we're just trying to be a sustainable business. They're trying to build like, you know, they were they were acting like it was a software platform, and they can and they could just afford to, you know, for, to basically absorb all the costs of on of onboarding people, mm-hmm. uh, onboarding people, and that someday it would actually make money. Um, but the problem is, you know, surviving that level of competition, which is not really market based. It's, I mean, it's it's being fueled by like Saudi money and. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it was just all yeah. shades of of goofy, you know, in my view. Yes. Um I it's legal. They can do it, but it just kind of sucked because it it made it hard for anybody, you know, for for other people to really um you know, to kind of keep their ships going.
1: Did they ever come to you? Did they want to acquire you or were they just like we'll just run them out of town?
0: No, we were really they were really different. Um we were approached by Regis, which is really big. Um they wanted to do something, you know, maybe like take our brand and and blow it up. And, but then, you know, we started talking money and they were were like, oh, they're, they're bargain hunting. So that was kind of, you know, we were hoping for something better than, you know, a few shekels. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: did, I'm, I'm curious on a personal level, was there part of when, when the WeWork explosion started to happen, was there part of you, given how early you were to co-working and yeah. to seeing that this was kind of the, the the work culture of the future. Was there part of you that was like, Ugh, we should have gone national before they did. This could have been us.
0: Yeah, I mean, maybe. But like the more I read about, I mean, yes, I mean, I always felt like, yeah, we were early enough. We were kind of part of a, there was a co-working wave before us, believe it or not. There was people who were just in it for the love, pure love. I mean, they were like, whether they made a penny or not, was not important, and in true to form, they didn't make money, and mm-hmm. a lot of them went under. We were a second generation of people who said, like, well, still love. I mean, love the idea. I'm in it for its its you know, tangible and intangible merits, but got to make money because I got like kids in school and that yeah. kind of thing. You know, so we were part of there. There was a bunch of us. Um and we even formed an association called the League of, League of Extraordinary Coworking Spaces and I and hmm. which persists to this day and some of my best friends.
1: All local? No, or no, national? global now. Oh wow. Yeah,
0: and and what cements that group together is trying, you know, preserving some of the ideals of coworking but also trying to be really professional and create like a great environment and a good business, you know, okay. like really trying to be serious about the business side. Mm-hmm. Um so so I think a lot of us in that group kind of thought we, you know, that we deserved to kind of hit the big time with it. But I think, you know, we were, I mean, they 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 were unique. They were coming out of New York. They were they had they were able to take advantage of, you know, kind of some real estate connections and and financing connections, which you can have in that city and, and doesn't come as easily here in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. So they they had a unique circumstances that allowed them to take what was essentially No different than what we were doing, but to really just, you know, kind of go to town with it. So Yeah.
1: And as we saw, there was a lot of smoke and mirrors there. When it sounds too good to be true, it it usually is.
0: Yeah. And I had more people contact me after their implosion and say like, you were right all along. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> but, but that doesn't really help it doesn't after, help. after it's, it's happened. So, so what, at what point did you start thinking maybe we need a, a partner? When did Fueled Collective?
0: Happen? Yeah, um, it, it was part of that whole search for like, okay, co-working itself is like, okay as a business, it's not great, you know, it's not mm-hmm. going to make anybody rich. And so that's why we were always casting about for like, well, what's the twist on this? And we were approached by some franchise operators out of Cincinnati, and they had just launched a thing called Cycle Bar, which has actually done pretty good. I forget how many units they sold, but it's in the hundreds, which is in the franchise world that's not bad. Yeah. Um, and they had just come off of selling that, and they said we want to do co-working next, and so we started the dance with them. Took some convincing because we thought, oh, franchising, you know. Hmm. Um, but ultimately, we we you know we did a deal with them, and they started really doing the the due diligence on our business model and came back and said it just doesn't make enough money because with a franchise you need you need to get about a 30%. I mean I'm I'm using really rough terms but you want about a 30% gross margin because a little you know close to 10% is going to go to the house and to mm-hmm. go to the franchise owner and and anybody who would invest in that wants to know that they can take you know a decent percentage home sure so you aim for giving the franchisee 20% at the end of the day so they said we got to juice this up. So what they what they came back to us with they said what if we take co and combine it with um and combine it with hospitality. So what would be at the center of the space is a bar and a lounge. Um you would have a lot of you would d- redesign the space so you can have events at any time of the day or night that doesn't impinge on the members who are actually trying to get work done. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of have this this you know it it makes sense for three reasons because you you're going to take a lease and if all you do is is make money from eight to five, you're leaving mm. all the other day parts out. Mm-hmm. And then when you get into events, you have besides like somebody paying a rental on an event, you've got liquor sales and, right. and potentially food sales. So it was the idea of like really trying to fire on more pistons. Well, they came back to us with that. And it really did seem like a good model. We built a prototype in Cincinnati and it was just gorgeous. And it was off to a good start. And then I think, you know, our partners... We're having a hard time selling the model because it ended up being the, it was, it was built out so beautifully that it ended up being like a, a $2 million investment for somebody to build one of these locations. Ah. And so that means you now have to talk to a higher end buyer, uh-huh. not just somebody who retired from General Mills with their 401k, uh-huh. but you have to start talking to investment groups. And that's a longer sales cycle. And
1: So you were, you were kind of building your version of Industrious or one of these kind of slicker, more professional operations.
0: Yeah, I would even take it a step further. It's almost like we're, we were building, um, our plan was to build mini conference centers. Okay where you could have events, multiple events, you you can cater them, but you also have the day-to-day work crowd. Yeah. And and what you get in, in terms of energy is what you really want. It's just like, oh my gosh, this is a hub. So we we still have that idea in mind, but COVID caused us to kind of retrench. And so we had a deal in the works prior to COVID. We're gonna try to see if we can revive something like that where we would basically be, build, be building a, a de facto Event and work center.
1: So you built this out in Cincinnati. Meanwhile, you still had how many COCO co working spaces here? And did you start thinking about how you could retrofit those yeah. to do events?
0: Yeah, we had five of them uh, four here in the cities and one in Chicago. And as it turned out, the only one that really made sense to retrofit was a grain exchange. Yeah. The rest were just really, they weren't ever conceived of or, or you know, outfitted or they weren't even the right size for mm-hmm. what we are looking to do. So we knew that. The only way we could ever do this model is by doing net new somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that was really where we were headed um, when when COVID hit. So
1: And you so you closed some cocoa yeah, locations.
0: St. Paul, we closed, or at least came up on that, and, and we didn't renew it. Um, Chicago, we closed because when we got the Chicago location, it was probably perfectly suited for the area. It's in the West Loop, which is a hot area. Mm-hmm. Right after we acquired it, all of a sudden, like the neighborhood just goes hot. And we had like two E-Works within four blocks. Mm. And then Industrious and everybody else. I mean, Mm -hmm. all sorts of people you've never even heard of. Um, And they were all going large scale, you know, 40,000, 50,000, 60,000 square feet. And we were sitting here with this little space. that was maybe 15. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: So could you try, was there any attempt to market it off of that, that like, These guys are the giants. It's kind of like going to a chain restaurant versus some neighborhood joint. Like you want that local, smaller flavor.
0: We tried that, but I. But what we discovered, and this is this is like you know, anybody who sticks with their business long enough might come to realize that like, you know, what was so amazing and special about it might lose some of its charm, and it becomes Hmm. a commodity. Mm -hmm. And in this case, people we realized, wow, we're hearing from more and more people who are just price shopping, and. And in the end, they're like, "Hey, if WeWork gives it to me for next to nothing, or somebody else does, I'll go there." So we, that was the dynamic that we start. We realized, yeah. You know, after some time, yep. It takes time to realize what's actually you know in the water. Um, we realized that this was it was changing in a couple of ways. It was becoming going from people wanting to be out in the open and at open shared tables to wanting private offices. Mm-hmm. So now you have to start building for that. You know, so we did retrofit a few times in a few of our locations um, to try and keep up with that. But then also that people are becoming, there's so much of this available that they can, it, it is basically a, a buyer's market. Yeah. And that they would shop you on, you know, like they were shopping for, you know, airline tickets. Sure.
1: Uh, But then I feel like and and I don't know, maybe along the timeline, if it was a reaction to that or if it's just, you know, everything goes in waves. I feel like you then had uh, some co-working that was more about community or they emphasize that more. I think of places here in town like The Coven where, you know, it's not just that you're getting a space to work, but it's a community of, you know, it's women. It's, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, or or they have some unique proposition to them or become a little more nichey.
0: Yeah, yeah. That makes sense if you have a niche, you know, but we, we always resisted that um, because our our thesis was like, this is good for everybody. Mm-hmm. So it, like it actually was helpful for you. Maybe you're a finance person and you sit next to a programmer or you sit next to a marketing person. And we saw that happen again and again. So we our, our belief was like, oh, no, we, you don't want to be surrounded by all the same kinds of people. And that was us responding to the tech side of things. You know, we're just like, No, it can't be just techies only. We want a whole bunch of other people to show up. Um, so we we never really wanted to go niche. But it makes perfect sense that, you know, that that and maybe because all the co working options were generic in that sense, mm-hmm. that somebody would you know, show up and say, like, I'm doing something just for these people. Yeah. Yeah. And and get a good response out of that, and especially if it's kind of uh, has a bit of a cause behind it. Right. Of like, hey, there's some remedial kind of remedial work that needs to be done regarding this audience. Um,
1: it, it makes sense. Yeah. So I think it was, was it like 2017 that you became Fueled Collective? I think Am that I... was,
0: yeah, I think that was the year we did that.
1: Okay. And that, what that, it wasn't just a name change. That was you partnering with. with
0: Yeah. So we formed a partnership with with the uh, franchise developers and and yet one other individual out of New York who had a business called Field Collective. Got it. And the way, you know, and the way the whole agreement went, we had we had votes on what to do with the business, but we didn't have we didn't have, you know, a majority votes. So we argued that like, the name of this new enterprise should be Coco and here's all the reasons why and the the majority of the other shareholders said, No, we think Field Collective's a better name to go with nationally. And so we were like, "All right, I guess you know we cut this deal. Here's the way the governance works on the board. I guess we got to go with this decision." So we we had to do the rebranding. I see. Um, and it, it, yeah, it was hard for us. And I think I think um, we're keeping it for now because um, just because it's it's a it's a a fire we don't want to have to go fight yet. Mm-hmm. But I think we'll be looking at at you know considering either going back to the cocoa name or hmm. or doing something different, just because ultimately it's like. It's a mouthful. Um, The original space in Cincinnati has kind of gone off in a different direction, and we just kind of like don't want to be associated. Hmm. So,
1: so how many fueled collectives are there?
0: Well, I mean, it's just basically our. Well, there's our two our two spaces in Minneapolis, the one in Cincinnati, um, and then there's the original one in New York. Got it. um, and, And I don't even know if they're if they're taking members at this point. They're kind of it's kind of a private thing. Okay.
1: Um, in the early days of the pandemic, I know we were you know, there were still co-working spaces that were in, you know, Lifetime had just announced like a week before everything shut down. They had just announced that they were going to build this huge uh, life workspace downtown. And, you know, you still had people that were in expansion mode. And then it was like, ooh, you know everything about collaboration suddenly seemed really like a terrible idea and shared really? workspaces and, and, oh my gosh, what's the future of this industry? Now, a year and a half later, it looks a little different. I think we're all itching to get out of our houses. There are probably more people who want flexibility and you know, are kind of craving that. Where is co-working as an industry today?
0: I... It, I the way I would describe it is that, of course, everybody had to hunker down and hope they could survive during COVID because you had an in-person based business that doesn't do delivery, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you don't have a lot of options. Right. <laughs> you know, um, I, I would say probably the thing that kept most people going, you know, to the extent they could was the PPP loans. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, like virtual offices, basically giving somebody a mail, a mail stop, mm-hmm. you know, um, in delivering that service. That's not much but those who made it were basically counting on the fact that it would come back um and that and what became clear over 2020 was that oh a lot of companies are are they a lot of big corporations saw the opportunity of maybe not owning so much office space yes. and rethinking how that works and and so it wasn't surprising but it was interesting to see that that the very idea of hybrid work um really you know came into its own in 2020, as as you know, big enterprises were 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 trying to like, what do we do? because yeah. cause we don't want to make everybody show up every you know every day, but the office still needs to exist in some form. So, the idea that you know maybe you come into the office twice a day or twice a week, and you're home the other three, that opens an opportunity for for coworking because it's a professional office that's not your home and it's not your HQ. So. Ideally, if you have one close to where you live, now, now you don't have much of a commute at all, but you've got a better working condition. So mm-hmm. I think what you're going to see is that the suburban, you know, the co-working spaces that are closer to residential areas, um, you know, in bedroom communities, they're going to probably do really well. If if indeed there is this kind of, you know, uh, an uptick in, in co-working due to hybrid employees
1: do you you've been around and in the industry long enough to see various trends and see things cycle do you think hybrid work is here to stay or do you think things are gonna swing back to the office
0: I've seen <laughs> I've seen everything swing in directions you know what I mean like it's a definitely a pendulum thing you know that at least what I've witnessed so whenever there's a boom I'm like oh there's a bus coming you know and <laughs> and then the bust it won't last forever you know so I just know that's how it goes so, I if I were to bet, I'd be willing to say that, like, yeah, it we'll get it for a while, and and then we may get companies trying to, you know, kind of, um, whether it's for in the in the, in the name of culture building culture or, you know, or or deeper collaboration. I think you'll see companies eventually start to pull it back in. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll see. We'll see.
1: There's always there's. Um, also this conversation that I feel like is never ending about, you know, open concept. Everybody for a while wanted their headquarters to kind of look more like your cool cocoa spaces. Yeah.
0: Right? Oh, yeah. They were they were totally going. To, I mean, I knew that co-working was huge because from the first like month we opened, we were being romanced by people like Steelcase and some architecture firms and, and groups that like saw that They were sniffing the waters. In in the case of Steelcase, they said, well, we furnished the entire Sears Tower back in the day. That's never going to happen again. Like, we are just not going to sell the same amount of cubicles and furniture and stuff like that. So they saw that was coming, but so they wanted to get it, figure out, well, then what is this new world? And I think indeed what happened is that co-working influenced the furniture makers, the architects, who then brought some of that information into the corporate environment yeah. and so anybody who hates the open floor plan I think they can they can pretty much blame coworking. <laughs> okay. Yeah.
1: Um that's another question mark it, you know is are we going to swing back to those open concept offices or is everything going to be closed off? I mean, we I don't we, know. I wish I I wish I knew it. it I, you know,
0: I I I guess I just I know what I read, you know, because that's not I'm not in the corporate world. Yeah. Um
1: it's like, is it, is it a good time to invest in doors and plexiglass or, you know, or do we come back to, the, you know, I mean, we've had conversations about the fact that if we think about the office as the place to meet other people and the place for collaboration, you do need to be out in the open. Right. And maybe that private head down work time, instead of that being done in an individual cubicle, that's now what we do at home yeah. or in a co-working space.
0: Yeah, entirely possible. I mean, that makes sense to me, to my mind.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, fueled collective, made it through the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I imagine your spaces were closed for a while. Was there anything you were able to do to, to, to stay afloat? To-
0: yeah. Um, it's kind of a funny thing because we had always joked when we started the business or when we, we joked when we got the lease at the grain exchange, because we only had 35 paying members in St. Paul mm-hmm. when we signed up for Minneapolis. So that was like a seven figure lease, you know. They would come after us and our children and our <laughs> grandchildren. Like if you know scary. I mean? yeah, yeah, personal guarantee on a huge lease is a scary thing. Yeah. And so we always joke that, well, if this co-working thing doesn't work out, this would make a great wedding venue. Mm. But what happened was we we had some kind of permanent structures on the on the trading floor mm-hmm. um that we were able to clear because everybody canceled and left. Ah. So we cleared all that stuff. The grain exchange happened to have a, a leak that damaged some floorboards. They went there and redid the entire floor. So it's pristine and beautiful. We took the opportunity to say, like, this is going to be a wedding venue on, on you know, Fridays and weekends. Hmm. And, and so we geared up that whole sales cycle, and we got a few bites during pandemic for a future date. Okay. And now we're booking on a, on, on a regular basis. And that's a great other way to make money, because if you think about it, the asset, is is this lease that you took Mm -hmm. what are the different ways you can monetize it you know sure that's certainly is a good one
1: i've seen the the ads for have your wedding here and it is a a really cool cool space um i have proof by the way
0: because i my my wife and i had our wedding reception there ah uh and it was fantastic we only had a third of the space and it was magical i bet um so yeah i i would tell anybody you're a pioneer
1: (laughs) had to be Getting, getting, having a wedding reception at a co-working yeah. space. Meanwhile, have, have the, has the co-working returned? Are the yeah. members coming back? Yeah,
0: it has. And, um, that, that's the good news. Yeah. People started, uh, stepping back out. And I think the minute, you know, the vaccine really took hold or we could see that there was enough coming in and people were doing it that, um, I think at that point people started, they felt comfortable making commitments. Mm-hmm.
1: So, what role are you playing today with? Because I know you've you've stepped away. You're not day to day running fueled collective.
0: Yeah, I'm really just a board member and a shareholder. So, um, every quarter, I. I jump on the call and we go over the numbers and the plans and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And
1: that happened when you partnered with them, or did that come? come no, later?
0: no, that just happened in uh, late 2019. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I just kind of needed a change, and I went back to being you know I was also like really outliving my usefulness, and this is this definitely happens because I, I was really more of a minister without portfolio. Like I just like did various things that that needed doing or that interested me, uh-huh. and I think things got more professionalized and stratified as we went. And so I was like, mostly a fly in the ointment.
1: And and you were like, I don't like working for companies. That was my whole thing.
0: The, I, I got to get out of here. I never wanted to be an employee. So yeah.
1: <laughs> okay. Interesting. How do you think, uh, you know, given what happened with, with WeWork, and I know obviously there is some restructuring and they're still around and Industrious obviously has a big presence downtown. We've still got, I mean, there are a few places that that closed up. I'm I'm just talking about in the mm-hmm. Twin Cities alone mm-hmm. um, over the past year, but it's still a a, a solid number of co working. How does it all shake out? Is there? Do you think there's room? Will everyone find their niche the way you are with events or with a specific focus, or do
0: you think we're going to see more closings than openings? I think you'll see more. I think what you'll see is a is, is a flip flop of what happened, where everybody invested and opened these spaces downtown, and I think you'll see more spaces opening up in the suburbs. Mm. And maybe some people will be like, well, you know, downtown's not quite what it was. Which is just to say that that I don't feel like commuting from Bloomington to downtown to go work. Mm-hmm. You know, like like even people who were co-working members have adopted the same mentality of like, you know, what I like being closer to home. I like being there for my children. I like, you know, not being on the road so much just to go work. Yeah. So I, th- I think you'll, s- you'll still see co-working spaces open up because they still have a really great role to play. Like I am like I myself, like if I don't want to leave where I live in Richfield, I'm like, I would still like to be part of a community. So, mm-hmm. so you know, if somebody opened a coffee shop right next to me, yeah, that would kind of get the job done, you know, on a da- daily basis. Mm-hmm. But, so I, I, I think you're going to see, you're still going to see them opening up, but they may look a little different because they are suburban. Right. Um, there's one group in town called uh, the Reserve, mm-hmm. and they uh, they started out originally in Edina. Then I think they had gone to Plymouth and Woodbury and maybe Maple Grove. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're Maple Grove, not Plymouth. But anyways, they they deliberately went to the suburbs, and and I'd be willing to bet that they're really glad they did now. Yeah, I bet that maybe this is their moment to start, you know, expanding.
1: Right. What about the culture piece? I mean, that was so key. You were building a community, and it it was about those connections. And do you think that still exists today? Is there the craving for it, or have you know all of those techies of yesteryear just kind of found other places to to connect? And
0: I've always felt like, you know, someone who maybe came along for the ride with us, you know, in let's say twenty ten maybe stuck with us until 2013 and then they went off. Like people they matriculated, you know. They they were there for the part where it made sense and then they maybe joined a bigger firm or started a firm. We had one one group um uh, it was a designer and a coder who got together and started a thing and they and now they have a really big company with their own offices and they they do custom development and and they're the perfect example. They were great coworking members while they were with us, but eventually they needed their own space. Like they just had to kind of have that. Sure. Um, we made less sense because you you hit a certain number and actually coworking gets to be expensive mm-hmm. for you know for group. So um, I think that's entirely natural. And but what that means then is there's always somebody who's at that stage in their journey where coworking might be the perfect thing. Yeah. They do need to make connections. They need to find kind of the the you know. People who are advice givers, people who are resource providers. Um, so we're I feel like we're always meeting those people who are at that point. hmm And then the ones who were there, well, they've gone off, you know, they're doing their other things. So
1: Yeah. In the same way that you've gone off. So what's next for you?
0: Yeah. Well, I was I was muddling about a little bit. I uh during COVID I was lucky enough to get a uh a consulting and writing gig with a group called Liquid Space, which is basically a big marketplace for shared offices. And and so by work with working with through working with them, I was tuned into this whole like what's happening with corporate America and how they're mm. embracing you know hybrid offices. So that was a really nice run. But then I got recruited by uh, a friend to consult with uh, an ag co-op. Hmm. And but this ag co- co-op is a little different. It's um it's a it's a regenerative ag co-op. And I didn't know what regenerative agriculture was. <laughs> um, Had to look that up, huh? Well, I did. Well, I got a lesson from the from the founder of this group. Um, he's his name is Reginaldo, and he's um, he is a Guatemalan agronomist, but who's been here for a long time. Mm-hmm. And his genius is he's like, well, I want to figure out how more people can can grow crops and animal and raise animals in a way that actually improves the land and doesn't detract from it or extract from it. Um, but he's a systems thinker, and his idea was like, well, it's not just enough to set up a bunch of farmers with with new techniques. You need to have the market. You need to have the processing. You have to have the the marketing and the distribution. In other words, the whole supply chain has to be set up so that way anything they grow can be bought for a good price, and then they build they build wealth. So his system, he's been he's been setting up small you know small farmers, a lot of them immigrants, with these little three thousand or three hundred acre farms where they can grow fifteen hundred chickens at a shot. But the chickens live under a canopy of elderberries and hazelnuts. And it turns out there's like symbiotic relationships. The hazelnuts love nitrogen. Well, the birds happen to be pooping a lot of nitrogen, which would normally wreck the soil. It'd be too much. Yeah. But the hazelnuts are just sucking it right up. And 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 so, and then the birds can eat the the berries and the nuts, or you can harvest them separately. So so this this three tier system um, is like got all the certifications. You know, like it's it's organic. It's humanely raised. The chickens basically. Roam all day under trees, hmm. which is what they love because they're from the jungle mm-hmm. and and so what I got hired to do was to take to do the next step to come up with a business plan for a big plant that would process you know if it opens in twenty twenty five as we're thinking a million chickens a year, an ungodly amount of eggs i I forget how many millions because mm-hmm. they produce all eggs um elderberries, hazelnuts, vegetables, and some other crops, but the genius. That I, you know, finally figured out that he was trying to explain to me is, no, it's not just processing center for our activity, for the co-ops activity, but it's going to be like co-working, a big common facility that has shared utility where we have co-tenants. And so basically, let's say if you have, you know, you have like Allison's ketchup and you want to make that ketchup from tomatoes that are grown from a regenerative farm. So mm-hmm. the bona fides are fantastic. The marketing claims are great. Um, you might get a production suite with us. You'll have, you know, low-cost access without any capital investment on power, you know, water, drainage, sure. connectivity. And there might even be, you know, what we're imagining is a shared library of equipment. So if you need to crush your tomatoes for, the, let's say, juice, um, well, we have a bladder press that's sitting there. You just need to book it and then use it. Or there's production kitchen. Or there's test a testing lab. So it's the same kind of thing as co-working, interesting. you know? Yeah. Um,
1: I thought you were going to say co-working for chickens, and I didn't know what they were working. Well, that's on. an interesting concept. <laughs>
0: I'm gonna, I, you know, I'll, get back to me on that. Yeah, I'll one. get back to you on that. <laughs> Very cool. But it's a similar game, and yeah. you know, of like taking businesses and trying to get them into kind of a uh, a situation where there's mutual support or de-risking a little bit for them to set up shop, mm-hmm. and there's hopefully some symbiotic relationships. So, like. You know, somebody who processes grain actually has some some stuff that they can't sell. It's like the broken bits of grain and chaff. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out chickens love that. So now you have something that goes into chicken feed. Or if you have a brewer and they have their spent grain after they make their wort, well, mushroom growers can use that as their substrate for growing mushrooms. Hmm. So we're, we're, we're our hope is to stitch together enough businesses that benefit from being in proximity, mm-hmm. whether they're just buying from each other or using each other's um, byproducts. That that, it, it kind of, you end up with something where it's like greater than the sum of the parts.
1: So, and is that why this founder came to you because of your? I mean, did your co-working background play a role? In yes, him apparently, apparently. Really? They.
0: Um, I at first questioned like why they were talking to me because I was like I have no ag background. Um, you know I'm not an engineer. Yeah. Uh, let alone an ag engineer. You know who can think about well how do you do assembly lines and and chicken processing and stuff like that. Um. But I'm a, I'm a generalist, you know, and I'm able to think of like, I, I can definitely, you know, get up to speed on people's business models pretty quickly mm-hmm. and then think about how to stitch them together. And I think that's what this game is. Yeah. You know.
1: So what are your kind of fundamental takeaways from your co-working experience or just from thinking about work in, you know, kind of these collaborative shared ways, whether
0: it's space yeah. or intelligence? Well, I. I remain excited by the idea of bringing people together um especially people who who would have no other means of really you know getting into close proximity with others learning from them you know having having that surface area contact that you can only have when you're with somebody for an extended period of time if i just see you at a conference that's not enough mm-hmm. you know a little a little side conversation in the hallway between sessions you know i used to always say about coworking is it's that the the Great conversation you have between sessions at a conference, but all day long, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, I still love to get people together like that and give them the opportunities to realize that that boundaries can be permeable and that they can actually learn from really disparate disciplines, you know, once they have nothing, that they have, have had no contact with. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, you're like, I'm an artist and I'm learning from an engineer. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, or vice versa. So. That's why this business appeals to me because I'm like, oh, we're gonna get a bunch of people in here who've never had the opportunity to be in a community where like you can hit up three other, you know, founders about how to think about this problem, mm-hmm. um, or maybe financing is a little easier because we're actually bringing in some of the financing and trying to make it available, mm-hmm. things like that. So I, I I think after you know this is probably the next fifteen months I'll be working on this, and and I paint on the side, I'm a, not houses but but canvases, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking I really would like to do something like this in the arts. hm um, and my, my original idea was like a shared studio because in college, you know the studio where all the students had to hang out in the open space in view of each other's projects was really like it, it lent itself to a really high learning curve yeah and you just learned a lot all the time. so I, so I, you know I think some people are doing this already, but I, that, that's kind of some direction I'd like to go in.
1: Very interesting. I mean, it's neat to see. I mean, that's a very cool legacy to see how you can apply that kind of the fundamental thinking behind coworking to other ventures.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and it changes lives. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I do have people, and this is something I'm, I guess, I'll always be proud of. I have people who will tell me, you know, on a fairly regular basis that, that something about their time at Coco changed the trajectory of their of their work, you know, in some cases, well, we, we, we did have a, we did have a marriage out of the St. Paul Coco. <laughs> so it's even life changing, you know, not yeah. just career changing. Yeah. Um, so that feels good.
1: Were there any moments during the pandemic where you thought, I mean, because everything you've done is, is so, you know, hinges on that personal connection and collaboration. Did did you have moments where like this is gone forever or did you <laughs> firmly believe we will always cycle back?
0: To I together. I did believe you would cycle back. I I told everybody as 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 we were all sitting there collectively hand wringing you know, like oh, the world will never be the same. I was like, mark my words, it'll be it'll it'll be the same. People will go back with a vengeance. Hmm. And and you see how like bars are, it's you know, happening. And restaurants are, are yeah. being
1: crammed. Yes, it's happening already. Totally
0: happening. I think I think now we feel like we're making up for lost time. Yeah. You know, we were all deprived for that year. But the good news is, I I think that. It's made a lot of us not take for granted how special it is to just simply to gather with with people in person, you know? Suddenly, the
1: most basic things seem really novel. Like yeah,
0: going to an office. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, congratulations on everything that Thank you've you achieved, endured, made work for you, and it will be really exciting to to see how this whole regenerative agriculture thing turns out.
0: Yeah, I'm eager to see like what can be done with it. A
1: so. lot of lot of buzz among the chickens, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Don. Really Thank appreciate you. your presentation. My pleasure. Well, the way we work has changed so much in the last year and a half. A lot of companies are now trying to figure out what to do with their office spaces. How are they gonna bring people back? How will we work together going forward? For more perspective, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas, Opus College of Business, where Rod Hagedorn is an adjunct faculty member He also is a co-working tenant himself, and he teaches management, which is so relevant right now. Rod, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. So talk about how you are thinking through right now as basically every company out there is, is reconsidering space and the way we work. What do you suggest? What's the best way to think about these big, overwhelming issues right now?
2: Well, I think instead of trying to second guess uh, where everything is headed, what we need to do is think in terms of what are the drivers of change uh, that we've all been dealing with. And the pandemic of this last year and a half, I think, if anything, really taught all of us about the need for agility and agility in terms of our business operations. The pandemic has shown us that there are other environmental challenges that we're facing Mm -hmm. that require us to be agile now more than ever before.
1: But does being agile mean that a company has to cover all bases? Do you have to have the office in case people want to be there, but it might be empty much of the time? Do you have to, you know, have all the remote hookups as well? How how do you do everything? How How do you stay agile when so much seems unknown or volatile?
2: Well, I think you find the solution somewhere in the middle, right? Uh, If you have um, a huge, you know, 200,000 square foot office space, you're spending a lot of money on rent. Uh, And if half of the time that office space is empty, that doesn't make a lot of sense either from a financial standpoint. Um, At the same time, uh, you know, you want to have that agility for, people to potentially um, you know, work from wherever, wherever they need to work. Um, again, the organizations that were not able to adapt and not able to you know, very quickly switch to remote ways of working, um, they're the ones that really struggled and the ones that were able to do it, um, they came through the pandemic just fine.
1: You have some experience co-working yourself. And I think as Don was talking about, this interesting phenomenon is happening where as some companies are downsizing, suddenly there are people who want to get out of the house might be going to a co-working space because we all crave those spaces that are not our home. And if we don't have the office, where do we go? Do you you see this as a, a, is that kind of a, a trend going forward, do you think?
2: I personally do, yes. You know, there's different perspectives on this. And, you know, I've seen some surveys recently um, that indicate that the majority of employers would prefer to have their employees come back to the office full-time. But we're balancing that against, um, you know, um, a tight labor market. Um, It's becoming more and more difficult to find uh, talented professionals. And so I think that you know employers are going to have to find a balance between requiring people to come back in the office, maybe allowing some time to work from home, and then also um, taking into consideration, you know, as we talked about uh, earlier, the cost of having um, you know a huge office that's that's maybe empty part of the time. It seems to me that the best solution is somewhere in the middle. Where you know you have a space where people could go um to meet centrally, and then it still gives the opportunity to work remotely. The other thing is um we know that there are certain activities that are better done in person, for example, uh innovation and creative problem solving and These are two areas that are going to be critical for our economy and even our national security in many ways moving forward. Um, into you know, as we go through this decade and beyond, uh, and the the best way to uh, come up with innovative solutions and creative problem solving is still the old-fashioned way in the office, where you're you know with your colleagues. And it's because of the dynamic. We we need that presence.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: We need those people around us. We need to you know be able to you know sense what someone is feeling, or or you know see what their reactions are, various comments um and the only you can't really get that on a zoom meeting you you have to be in a conference room for example on site so what we're seeing a lot of companies do now is the ones that have agreed to more of a hybrid working relationship they want people in the office for you know things like brainstorming sessions and uh, problem solving sessions um, routine tasks, you know, the building spreadsheets or, you know, doing research, things like that. Those can be done anywhere. Right. But there are certain things that you need to be there with each other in order to maximize the the output.
1: Right. Well, lots, lots to think about and, and lots of changes to come, no doubt. We so appreciate your perspective, Rod.
2: Sure. Yeah, my
1: pleasure. Well, thanks again for joining us. And thank you to our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you like what you heard, please take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to know more about the show, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. Thanks so much for listening to By All Means. Teamwork to make By All Means, and we've got some all-stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti, Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Venita Sakar and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed By All Means.